Okay, friends. That sounded so depressing. <laughs> anyway, let me pep up a little bit. Okay. So if you guys are like my friend, um, you've probably been wondering, hey, Carly, where the f have you been? <laughs> and the answer to your question is nowhere and everywhere all at the same time. I am a um, infinite being who is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, I've been super, super busy. Uh, just recently started a new job and yeah, life, life, life was throwing hands there for a second with my schedule, but we're back on track. Welcome to birthday month, my birthday month where this month we get to primarily talk about Pisces and how absolutely psycho that they are. Yay us. <laughs> and um, yeah, I guess we're just going to get right into it, guys. We are just going to jump right on in to today's story. Hi, friends. How are you doing today? I hope you're all having the day that you deserve. My name is Carly Ramsey, and this is The Serial Zodiac. This week, we will be taking a look at the zodiac sign Pisces. And the specific case that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to be taking a look at the case of John Wayne Gacy. He's perhaps one of the most notorious serial killers, serial killers, serial killers, serial killers in U.S. history. He is a convicted child murderer. He raped and tortured at least 33 people between 1972 and 1978 in Cook County, Illinois. And John is a Pisces. Now, guys, if you know a Pisces in your life, be nice to them. According to the FBI, Pisces are ranked in the top 40% for um, becoming serial killers. <laughs> Um, so if you personally know me, be nice to me. That's basically what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> and if you don't know, my birthday is also in the month of March. And so that makes me a Pisces. So this month's stories will be very, very close to my heart. And it honestly does include some of I don't want to say they're my favorite serial killers, but some of the cases that really just kind of mind fucked me that people could be this sadistic and horrible. But anyway, back to John. John was dubbed the killer clown due to the fact that he dressed up as a clown for a local children's birthday parties 
And he also worked as a contractor and he was high. He was a highly respected member of his community. I'm, I'm not laughing because he dressed up as a clown and that's why they called him the killer clown. I'm laughing because it's, it's not funny, but it's always the people who communities, like small towns put on this like high pedestal that turn out to be horrible fucking human beings. Like there's a correlation. It's not always then. Like, it's not always like if you put this person on a pedestal, they're going to be a horrible human being. But yeah, like in most of these cases, these people have basically everyone in their town fooled and they're this great stand-up citizen. And it turns out they're like eating people's brains. <laughs> so the fact that he was a highly respected member of his community makes his crimes even more shocking. So today we're going to delve into the disturbing and complex case, including some of the disturbing details surrounding his victims, his motivations, and the Toluminous trial that exposed his heinous crimes. We'll be exploring Gacy's life and criminal activities, his trial and conviction, and the lasting legacy of his heinous crimes. So buckle up and get ready for a deep dive into the dark world of this serial killer, John Wayne Gacy. So I think this is an appropriate time for a little warning. So warning, the following presentation is intended for mature audiences only. It contains graphic descriptions of crime scenes, adult dialogue, and strong language. Viewer discretion is advised. John Stanley Gacy and Marion Elaine Robinson's only son, John Wayne Gacy, was born on March 17, 1942, at Edgewater Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. His mother was a housewife, while his father was a mechanist who worked in the auto repair industry. Gacy's family was Catholic, and he had a Polish and Danish background. Gacy had a close relationship with his mother and two sisters, but he struggled with his alcoholic father, who physically abused his family. John's father constantly disparaged his son, referring to him as dumb and stupid and made negative comparisons between John and his sisters. Gacy's father striking him with a letter, leather belt for inadvertently rearranging parts of an engine he had put together is one of his first memories of his father. While his mother sought to protect him from his abusive father, she was met with claims that he was a mama's boy and a sissy who would probably grow up queer. Gacy still loved his father despite this treatment, 
but he believed he was never good enough in his father's eyes. In 1949, Gacy's father learned that his son and another boy had been discovered touching a young girl inappropriately. As a form of discipline, his father spanked him with a razor stroke. The same year, Gacy would occasionally be molested in his truck by a family friend and contractor. Gacy was terrified that his father would accuse him, therefore never informed him about it. Let's take a pause. Let's, let's take a little pause. First off, John's childhood, typical, typical serial killer shit. Abusive dad, dismissive mom. Like, not saying she was dismissive. She did try to protect him. But I'm a firm believer of, like, I feel like there's there's more that could have been done sometimes. Like, a razor strobe? Come on, guys. And the fact that he was being molested and was so scared that his father may blame him, that he just didn't say anything, wild completely wild like that just speaks volumes to his childhood and what he had to go through back to the story john was an underweight oh my gosh i can't pronounce words sedentarian hold on sedentary child he was advised not to participate in any school sports due to a cardiac problem. And when John was in the fourth grade, he started having blackouts. These incidents occasionally caused him to be hospitalized. And in 1957, his appendix burst as well. Talk about a rough childhood. John later calculated that he has spent nearly a year in the hospitals between the ages of 14 and 18 and he blamed this for the fall of his grades as john lay in the hospital bed his father publicly accused his son of fabricating the incidents in an effort to attract sympathy and attention John's physical issue was never definitively identified, despite the fact that his mother, sisters, and a select group of close friends never questions, never questioned his ailment. One of Gacy's high school acquaintances remembers numerous occasions when his father thrashed or made fun of his son without cause. He once saw Gacy's dad, who had been drinking, come out of the cellar and start insulting, then striking his son. This happened in 1957. As her kid put up his hands to defend himself, Gacy's mother tried to step in. 
The acquaintance claimed that during these confrontations, Gacy never hit his father in return. Okay. So, I think, (laughs) and this is about to make me, this is going to make me sound like an asshole, but hear me out. Um, If you're not going to take care of your child or you're going to abuse them, um, just get an abortion. Pro tip. (laughs) Um, And hear me out. Because just as often as people say, oh, don't get an abortion, they could be the next president. They could also be the next serial killer because you weren't prepared or ready to have a child. Prime example, John Wayne Gacy. I mean, his father literally terrorized him throughout his childhood. And look at how he turned out. Treat your kids better. Treat your kids with respect. Or don't have them. Problem solved, right? Right. (laughs) Back to John. At the age of 18, John entered politics by serving as an assistant precinct captain for a local Democrat Party candidate in 1960. This prompted his father to criticize him even more and label his son as a patsy. Later, Gacy theorized that the real reason he decided to get involved in politics was to look for the acceptance from other people that he never received from his father. His father gave Gacy his first car in the same year that he started getting involved in politics. He held the title of the car in his name, until John had paid for it in full. He took several years to finish these monthly payments. If John didn't follow his father's instructions, his father would take the car keys away. Once his father seized the first set of keys in April of 1962, John bought a backup set. As a result, his father took off the distributor cap and Stored it for three days. After this episode, Gacy remembered feeling completely nauseous and depleted. Okay, let's take a little pause. Pause, pause, pause. Let me tell you something. If you don't know anything about a car, <laughs> I happen to know a lot about distributor caps. Side note. Um, when I was in high school, I had a 2001 GMC Jimmy and every time it rained, the car would never start. Reason being was the distributor cap. Um, it had, it was loose. So every time it rained, it would get moisture under it. To take off (laughs) your child's distributor cap off of their car because you didn't want them to drive it because they wanted to drive a car that they were paying for is wild. Like I get taking keys, but even at that point, John is paying for this car. He's also 18. And I mean, if he's paying for the car, I'm assuming he probably could have just went and gotten it in his own name. 
at this point, his dad is just holding this car over his head for absolutely no reason. And the fact that you're so upset that he went and got another set of keys that you took the distributor cap off of his car, which, it, like I said, if you don't know about cars, a distributor cap will cause your car to literally just not start. Like, you have to have the distributor cap on your car. Um, The fact that you use this as a form of punishment, like, I know lots of people who have trauma from cars not working. And so, like, not only this, but not only that, but, like, I mean, I feel like that definitely could make a person feel so helpless and so small. Like, you don't even have control of your life in the littlest aspects. You're paying for something that you can't use because... your dad just simply doesn't want you to use it because you didn't follow his directions, even though at the age of 18, you are a fully grown adult. Crazy. So with only $136 in his pocket, Gacy left home hours after his father changed the distributor cap in the hopes of finding lodging with a female relative who had moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. Two years earlier, after losing connections with her family. Over the course of three days, he alternated between sleeping in his car and budget hotels as he made his way to the city. John initially sought employment with the city's EMS service before being hired as a staff member at Palm Mortuary. John slept on a cot behind the embalming room as a mortuary assistant, and he spent, he spent three months there watching the embalming of corpses and occasionally acting as a pallbearer. Afterwards, Gacy admitted that he had entered the coffin of a deceased teenage boy while alone, hugging and touching the body before becoming startled. The following day, John called his mother to inquire about his father's willingness to let him go back home in light of this. And the following day, his father drove back to Chicago after approving. In September of 1964, John and Myers were married after a six-month engagement. Three Kentucky Fried Chicken businesses were subsequently acquired by Marilyn's father in Waterloo, Iowa. In exchange for moving into Marilyn's parents' previous home, which had been freed up for the pair, the couple moved there so John could oversee the restaurants. John would receive $15,000 annually, which equated to about a hundred and 144000 in today's money, plus 
a portion of the restaurant's earning in this enticing offer. John and his wife relocated to Waterloo after completing the necessary managerial training. He created a club in his basement where his crew could enjoy alcoholic beverages and pool. And while employing young people of both sexes for his restaurant, Gacy mostly interacted with the young men. Gacy offered alcohol to numerous of them prior to making sexual advances. And if they declined, he would claim that his efforts were only jest or moral test. John's wife gave birth to a son in February of 1966 and a daughter in March of 1967. John later described this period in his life as perfect since he had finally gained his father's approval. When Gacy's parents visited in visited the family in 1966 of July, Gacy's father personally apologized for the emotional and physical torture that he had inflicted on his son throughout his infancy and adolescence. He then shook John's hand and jokingly said, son, I was mistaken about you because that that's a fucking apology for years of torture. But I digress. John joined the local JC's chapter in Waterloo and often gave the organization extra time in addition to the 12 and 14 hour days he put in running the three KFC restaurants. John frequently bought fried chicken to the meeting and insisted on being addressed as Colonel. Together with the Waterloo JCs, he was also heavily involved in drug use, prostitution, wife swapping, and pornography. Although being viewed as conceited and a bit of a braggart, Gacy was highly regarded by his fellow JCs for his fundraising efforts. And in 1967, he was given the title of Excellent Vice President of the Waterloo JCs. Gacy served on the board of directors in the same year. So this is the part of the story where we're going to um, kind of backtrack and tell you what he was doing in addition to all of the things that he was also doing um, that I just mentioned before. So all of these things are happening kind of simultaneously. And this is more so about the actual crimes that he did. At least 33 young men and boys were killed by John, who buried 26 of them in the attic of his home. 
He enticed victims from Chicago's Greyhound bus station, Bug House Square, or just off the streets with the promise of a job with PDM. Booze, drugs, or money in exchange for sex. His victims included people he knew as well as random strangers. Some victims were violently grabbed, while others were duped into thinking John, who frequently drove about in a black Oldsmobile with spotlights, was a police officer. John often in a John often enticed a lone victim to his house, but on few occasions, he also killed two people at once, or what he liked to call doubles. Inside his house, Gacy's standard operating procedure was to bribe the young man with alcohol or drugs or otherwise win his trust. And after that, he would show a set of handcuffs to perform a magic trick, perhaps as part of a clown routine. He used to secretly unlock himself with the key he kept between his fingers after handcuffing his own hands behind his back. And next, he volunteered to demonstrate to his prospective victim how to unfasten his own handcuffs. The victim then The victim was then manacled and unable to release himself when Gacy would say, "The thing is, you have to have the key." Gacy called this restraint technique he used on his victims the handcuff trick. After shackling his victims, Gacy started raping and torturing his hostages before making his victim fellatiate him. He typically started by sitting on or straddling himself over the victim's chest. After sodomizing his victims, John tortured them by burning them with cigarettes making them impersonate horses while he sat on their backs and yanked on homemade reins around their necks and violated them with alien objects like dildos and prescription bottles. Gacy frequently manacled his hostages' ankles to a two-by-four with handcuffs attached at each end an act inspired by the Houston mass murders to immobilize their legs before indulging in acts of torture. He was known to have dragged or forced a number of his victims to crawl into his bathroom, where he partly drowned them in the bathtub before repeatedly reviving them to allow him to continue his protracted assault. He was also known to have verbally taunted many of his victims throughout their continued abuse. John would say that he would kill his victim when he chose to in cases where the victim had requested to be killed rather than subjected to further torture. 
John frequently used a rope tourniquet to strangle his victims before gradually tightening the rope with a hammer handle. He frequently told his hostages, this is the last trick, referring to this performance as the rope trick. At least once, when he tightened the rope around the victim's neck, he read a portion of Songs 23. A few times, the victim convulsed for an hour or two before passing away, but many of the victims actually died of asphyxiation from cloth gags that were pushed down their throats. With the exception of his two final victims, everyone was killed between 3 and 6 in the morning. John typically kept his victims' remains under his bed for up to 24 hours after they passed away before burying them in the crawl space. Here, he would occasionally sprinkle quicklime to expedite the process of decomposition before being buried. Several victims' bodies were brought to his garage and embalmed. And I know, I know, you are probably thinking to yourself, what a sick fuck. You would be correct. But you're also probably thinking to yourself, where the fuck was his family when he was doing this shit? Well, friends, here to tell you, they were in the house. His second wife had reportedly smelt death or decaying bodies and she would occasionally see him going down into the crawl space with big bags of um big big bags of lime yeah they were in the house while he was doing this The first murder committed by Gacy was on January 3rd, 1972. Gacy later claimed that after attending a family celebration on January 2nd, he made the decision to drive to the Civic Center in the Loop the next morning in order to see a display of ice sculptures. He then lured a 16-year-old named Timothy Jack McCoy from Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal into his car. McCoy was returning from a Christmas vacation in Eaton Rapids, Michigan to his father's home in Omaha, Nebraska, and informed Gacy in their initial conversation, his connecting bus to Nebraska was not due until noon. Gacy took McCoy on a sightseeing tour of Chicago and then drove him to his home with the promise that he could spend the remainder of the night and be driven back to the station in time to catch his bus. Prior to McCoy's identification, he was simply known as the Greyhound bus boy. Gacy claimed he woke early the following morning to find McCoy standing in his bedroom doorway with a kitchen knife in his hand. He then jumped from his bed and McCoy raised both arms in a gesture of surrender tilting the knife upwards and accidentally cutting Gacy's forearm. Gacy twisted the knife from McCoy's hand, banged his head against the bedroom wall, kicked him 
against his wardrobe and walked towards him. McCoy then kicked Gacy in the stomach, doubling him over. Gacy then grabbed McCoy, shouting, motherfucker, I'll kill you. He then wrestled McCoy to the floor, stabbed him repeatedly in the chest as he straddled him. As McCoy lay dying, Gacy claimed he washed the knife in his bathroom, then went to his kitchen and saw an opened carton of eggs and a slab of unsliced bacon on his kitchen table. McCoy had also set the table for two. He had walked into Gacy's room to wake him while absentmindedly carrying the kitchen knife in his hand. Gacy entered McCoy in his crawl space area before pouring concrete over the grave to conceal it. In an interview conducted a few years after his arrest, Gacy said that while he felt completely drained after killing McCoy, he had a mind-numbing orgasm as he was stabbing him and listening to his gurglations and gasped for oxygen. At that point, I realized death was the ultimate delight, he continued. Now that we know Gacy's a psychopath, um, we're going to go on and talk about his second murder. So Gacy claimed that he killed someone a second time in January of 1974. The victim's identity is still unknown and Gacy killed him by hanging him. Then hid the body for burial in his closet. Like, what? guys he claimed like this is like they have never identified this person they have they also like don't know if it's even like true um but this man's just out here it's not funny he's really out here being like yeah i also killed someone else that around that same time and um and i hung them and to get to hide the body, I, I I put him in my closet. Like, it's a flex. It's not. You're a psychopath, sir. Later, he claimed that the victim's lips and nose had released bodily fluids and stained his carpet. In order to avoid such leakage before the victims were buried, Gacy frequently inserted cloth rags into the victim's own of the victim's own undergarment or a sock into their lips. Ugh. This man's just a psychopath. John Boldovich, an 18-year-old PDM worker from Lombard, vanished on July 31st, 1975. The keys to Boldovich's automobile were still in the ignition when it was discovered parked close to the intersection of Sheridan and Lawrence, along with his wallet and jacket. When questioned by authorities, Gacy claimed that Boldovich and two companions had been to his residence to demand the unpaid wages, but they had come to an agreement and left together. During the course of the next three years, 
Boldovich's parents made more than a hundred calls to the police pleading with them to look into Gacy more thoroughly. Afterwards, Gacy acknowledged seeing Boldovich get out of his car at the intersection of West Lawrence Avenue and wave at him. Gacy claims that Boldovich said, I want to talk to you, as he walked up to the car. Gacy formally invited Boldovich to address the matter of his past due wages before inviting him back to his house. Gacy offered Boldovich a drink at his house before tricking him into letting his wrist be handcuffed behind his back. Gacy later admitted that prior to strangling the child, he had sat on the kid's chest for a time. Can anyone, like, imagine a grown-ass man sitting on your chest? But not just any man. Like, Gacy, Gacy was... Uh, on the heavier side so like imagine you being a child and this grown ass man sitting on your chest before he kills you like I can't even imagine what that kid's like last moments were like that's horrible in order to bury Boldovich's body later in the cross area he stored it in his garage Gacy had originally planned to dig a drain tile, but when his wife and stepdaughters arrived home earlier than expected, he buried Boldovich's body beneath the concrete floor of the tool room addition of his garage. Like, where? What, like, how did his family not smell these rotting bodies? So many questions, so little answers. And if they did smell it, why didn't they think to say anything? Like, oh, it's it smells like rotting flesh. The trial for Gacy started on February 6, 1980. Arguments centered on whether Gacy might be deemed crazy and sent to a state mental institute after confessing to the killings. In the year leading up to his trial, Gacy saw doctors at the Maynard Correctional Institute in Chester for more than 300 hours at the request of his defense attorney. Before a group of psychiatrists to assess whether he was mentally fit to stand trial, he underwent a normal of psychological examinations. Gacy made an effort to persuade the medical professionals that he had multiple personality disorder. The diligent, community-minded contractor, the clown, the engaged politician, and a police officer named Jack Hanley, whom he referred to as Black Jack, were the four personas he claimed to have. Gacy claimed to be speaking for Jack when he confessed to the police. Jack hated homosexuality and thought of male prostitutes as weak, ignorant, and degraded trash. Gacy's attorneys decided to have him enter a not guilty plea to the accusations against him. The defense on the grounds of insanity. The defense introduced a number of psych 
psychiatric professionals who had evaluated Gacy and presented him as a Jacqueline Hyde persona. Three mental health professionals who testified during Gacy's trial described him as a paranoid schizophrenic with several personas. Gacy was finally found guilty of 33 murders after a brief jury deliberation, and he rose to prominence as one of the most vicious serial killers in American history. He received 21 natural life sentences and 12 death sentences. Gacy spent nearly 15 years in prison in the Illinois Menard Correctional Facility. He appealed his conviction and gave conflicting accounts of the killings during interviews. Although having admitted, Gacy later rejected the accusations and set up a 900 phone number with a 12-minute recorded message reiterating his innocence. On May 10th, 1994, at the Stateville Correctional Facility in Crest Hill, Illinois, Gacy was put to death by lethal injection. While both proponents and opponents of the death sentence voiced their viewpoints. John Wayne Gacy was one of the most notorious criminals in American history. He was convicted of the rape and murder of 33 young men and boys in the 1970s. His case is a chilling reminder of the evil that lurks in our society and the importance of holding those accountable for their heinous crimes. I hope that this podcast has shed some light on this dark case and that it'll encourage people to learn more about the true crime stories that have shaped our history. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Serial Zodiac. And until next time, stay safe and stay informed. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my podcast. I am usually here for you on Thursdays. I totally apologize about my episode being a little late this week, but hey, better late than never. I can't wait to see you guys next Thursday. And until then, bye-bye. Stay safe.